Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, children, if there are any, uh, go ahead and make your way to Children's Church with Miss Melissa. Let's hear it. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, good for her. Uh, turn, please, with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Did it start snowing yet? No, we got plenty of time. 3 p.m.? All right, thank you. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 2. We're kind of in the middle of this chapter, or the first third of this chapter, so you can uh, locate it. We're going to pick up today in verse 14, which is where we left off last week. And we're praying that the Lord would minister to our hearts as he has been uh, faithful to do. So let's do that in prayer. Father, we, uh, we do want to hear from you. We want to certainly meet with you this morning. We, we desire, Lord, for your word uh, just to do a good work within us, in a deep place within us. And so, Father, there's lots going on, certainly in life and in our world, our nation, even things with the weather that potentially could distract us or just uh, kind of bring our minds elsewhere. Uh, but, Lord, we want to invest our hearts and our minds, Lord, into hearing from you. And so uh, we, we just put those things aside. We give you room to speak. And we believe you'll bless your church as a result. So uh, come, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, certainly we welcome our friends at home. I, I didn't do that as well. We're glad you're joining us that way. Uh, as I'm saying, we are in Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with the event that Jesus said would happen. So you recall in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples, just before he was taken up into heaven, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to wait there for the promise of the Father. And we know that the promise of the Father was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit, or the gift of the Holy Spirit as it's referred to in, in another location. And that happened to coincide with, that took place on the Jewish feast of Pentecost were the Feast of Weeks. And so we see Acts chapter 2, verse 1. This is from last week. It said, Now when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And as it will go on to say, the Holy Spirit was poured out. They received power on the day of Pentecost, forever changing the significance of that Jewish feast for the Christian church. That's the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, even, he says, to the end of the earth. Now last week our study, the latter half of the study, primarily focused on one of the signs of the outpouring of the Spirit in that particular instance. And that was that they began to speak in these unknown languages, unknown to the speaker, um, but certainly known by the listeners, as is evidenced by the text that we consider. And so one of the evidences of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in that particular instance was that they began to speak in these unknown tongues. If you look at verse 7, it says, And they, now remember the day or the devout Jewish men that gathered together, and they were amazed and they were astonished saying, not all, are not all of these speaking Galileans, and yet how is it we all hear them, each of them in our own native language? 
So we spent the majority of our time kind of breaking down this idea of tongues and what does tongues mean for the church today and what does Paul say about it in 1 Corinthians 14 and are we talking about the same gift in Acts chapter 2 as we are talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. So we spent time with that. You can go back and you can consider those things. But I want to remind you, chapter 1 verse 8 tells us the primary reason for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not so that the people would prophesy or not so that they would speak in tongues or any of the other sign gifts there, but as it says in chapter 1, verse 8, that you will be my witnesses. He says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now our passage today is going to begin the fulfillment of that remarkable promise. It's going to begin a look at Peter in particular in boldness, standing up and being a witness as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're also going to see the effectiveness of Peter. I don't want to ruin the story, but it tells us toward the end that over 3,000 responded that particular day to Peter's message. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And just as Jesus said, he would be his witness first in Jerusalem. You see that there in chapter 1, verse 8. My witnesses in Jerusalem. And by the end of the book of Acts, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, when the Holy Spirit came, it tells us in verse 2 of the chapter that he came with the sound, as if it were the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And that sound, Acts chapter 2, that sound was enough, and it was either that sound or it was all of the, the Christians that were beginning to speak in these other tongues and the commotion that that would have likely caused, one of those two things caused the multitude of the people of Jerusalem to come out to see what was going on. All right, And so we see, it says, and at this sound, the multitude came together, verse 6, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. Verse 6 says they were bewildered. Verse 7, amazed and astonished. And then we see in verse 12, it says they were amazed and perplexed. And so the multitude had come out. I used the example last, last time we were together. You know, you're, you're in a room and you hear something in another room go crashing down. And your question is, what was that? And you go running to find out what it was. And typically when you get there, oh, the cabinet fell and all the dishes broke. That's what the noise was. When you get there, you see, you understand. But these fellows, they're hearing this commotion, this multitude. They're hearing this commotion and they still don't understand what is going on, even when they're looking at it. And so they're perplexed, they're amazed, they're bewildered, all of those words that are used there. And so you'll notice now what Peter will do, Peter will stand up and he will explain what it is that is going on. He's answering their unasked question, at least in the text, unasked question. And so starting at verse 14, it says, Now, but Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. He said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I think it's verse 13. Uh, some of the people said, ah, oh, they're, they're just drunk. And Peter said, they're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, he's quoting Joel, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, 
and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. <clears throat> the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's Peter standing in front of this multitude. And he's going to explain exactly what it is that is going on here this particular day, what it is that these people are seeing. Peter, you recall, the one who 50 days earlier, or 52 days earlier, whatever it was, denied the Lord, his Lord, in the presence of a little girl. A little girl intimidated him to the point where he would say, no, I don't know the man. I, I tell you, I don't know the man. Listen to me. I don't know the man. Three times he would deny the Lord. And yet here now, 50 days later, less than two months later, he's standing up in front of thousands and thousands of people. That alone would intimidate a lot of us, having to stand up in front of thousands of people. And he's standing up in front of thousands of people testifying, I'm with Jesus, and I don't care what you do to me. So it's not a little girl that is causing him to deny. Thousands of people he's unwilling to deny because something has gotten into Peter. Something has changed Peter. And we go back to Acts chapter 1-8. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. What has changed in Peter is that the Holy Spirit is now empowering him and directing him and leading him. And so with boldness he stands. It's a remarkable change in Peter. And not just in Peter, because you remember in the garden, when Jesus was praying with his disciples the night before, or he was in the garden and he was kind of a little bit away from them praying, when the Roman soldiers came, every one of them fled. Every one of them did, not just Peter. And yet, notice what it says in verse 14 of Acts 2. It says, but Peter standing with the eleven. It was like one of those political-type speeches you see where everybody crowds the stage behind the speaker. That's essentially what's going on. All 11 of them, all 12 of them with Peter, are identifying, I'm with Jesus, because something had changed them. Again, it was the Holy Spirit. He had empowered them. He, was, and he filled them. And he was enabling them to be an effective witness, just as he said he would do, and just as he promises to do in our day. Now, Peter begins to explain in verse 14. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. Now, before he digs exactly into what it is that has happened so that he can explain it to this crowd that is gathered, he first addresses the issue of their accusation that people were drunk. The Holy Spirit now working through Peter addresses that first. There's going to be kind of two parts to this sermon. The first one, this is what it's not. The second half of the sermon, this is what it actually is. And so the first thing is, he says, look, they're not drunk. Now, it, it kind of sounds funny because you have a situation here where he says, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. You know, you come back later in the evening and some of these guys, that, that's not what Peter is getting at. He's not saying that they're not drunk because it's so early in the morning. He's explaining to them that the, this isn't a drunkenness that you're seeing. This is the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. And I do want you to understand, 
they weren't running around, they weren't rolling around on the ground, they weren't acting crazy and all these kinds of things that people might attribute it to drunkenness, as some people today do. Some people today, they speak about this experience with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit uh, falls on a, a group of people and those people become drunk in the Spirit, running around, dancing, screaming, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. That's not what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. That's what these people suggested was uh, that they were drunk with the Spirit, but not because of those particular things. For them, it was a matter of, they're all speaking in these different languages. This is peculiar, this is odd, this is weird. And Peter is going to address it, and he's going to address it with God's Word, which I think is really significant for us to understand. Because people attribute all sorts of things to the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit made me do it. The Holy Spirit made me go there. The Holy Spirit made me say this. The Holy Spirit made me act in this particular way. And what Peter does is he says, look, what you see going on, let me bring you back to the scripture to explain what is going on. And if you can't explain what it is you're doing in church practice, whatever it might be, through the scripture, then you need to be really concerned about what it is that you're doing. And so Peter gets up and he begins to explain. He addresses the assertion of their drunkenness. He says they're not drunk, uh, as you see. He says because it's only nine in the morning. Now, the point that Peter is making is, this is a feast day. It's the Feast of Weeks, it's the Feast of Pentecost. And on the Feast of Pentecost, devout Jews, which it says that this gathered crowd is, devout Jews would fast in the morning. They likely wouldn't begin to eat until 10 a.m. or as late as noon, when the various sacrifices or what have you were taking place, where the offering of those two loaves of bread uh, had been presented. And so, of course, they're not drunk. Nobody, nobody's been eating because we're here in the middle of this particular feast. He says these people are not drunk. So the first thing Peter does in his sermon is he addresses what is not happening. And then, as I said, he shifts and he begins to focus on what really is happening. And Peter gives an amazing, simple, spur-of-the-moment, well-reasoned sermon that is filled with the word of God and boldness on the part of Peter. And God's going to use this sermon greatly to impact the people that are gathered there before him. You may recall when Jesus was with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. It was late in the ministry of Jesus, probably about four months left in the earthly ministry of Christ. And Jesus, Caesarea Philippi is way up in the north. It was probably a day and a half walk to get to that particular place. It was a private place where they could go. It was pretty much outside of the Jewish confines there. Jesus took his disciples essentially away on a retreat. And he said to them, he asked them this question, among other things I'm sure that he did, he asked them this question, who do people say that I am? And some of the disciples said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say you're Elijah, some people say, and you know, they, they gave all the different things that people said. And then Jesus turned to them, he said, but who do you say that I am? And it seems as if there was a moment of silence, and Peter kind of looks around, he gathers, well, you're the Messiah. That's what we think you are. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This is from the Lord. And he explained to him, I'll read it to you. It says in Matthew chapter 16, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. 
I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, there's all sorts of ideas as to what that means and different views and philosophies about Peter and his role and all those things. But the key thing is this idea of the keys to heaven, opening the doors and closing the doors, so to speak, unlocking those doors. And indeed, it is Peter who will open the doors with the keys of heaven, so to speak, preaching the gospel so that many Jews come to know the Lord. And later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that it's Peter unlocking the door, so to speak, to the Gentiles that would believe. God had given him, so to speak, these king keys to the kingdom of heaven. And here in Acts, a multitude of devout Jewish men and women are going to hear what Peter says regarding Jesus the Christ and respond in faith. They're going to believe. Peter says in verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. We studied the book of Joel two summers ago, summer of 19. And so perhaps you recall that particular book was a book that was uh, essentially filled with the judgment that was coming upon the nation of Israel, as many of the, the books of the minor prophets are. But this particular portion, and you recall when we were studying a lot of the minor prophets, there's a lot of judgment, a lot of judgment, a lot of judgment, and then this ray of light that comes in. And then a lot of judgment, a lot of judgment, and another ray of hope that enters in. And that's what goes on in the book of Joel. And about halfway through the second chapter of the book of Joel is this ray of light that shines forth in, in many ways, that dark book. And it's about the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit in the last days. G, or excuse me, Peter here, he references that. Now he's going to go on and he's going to reference three different Bible passages in this sermon. The book of Joel, verses uh, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 28 to 32, Psalm one, uh, 16, verses 8 to 11, and then Psalm 110, verse 1. And he'll tie all of those Old Testament passages together to make his case as to what it is that is going on in this uh, experience here on Pentecost morning. There's 26 verses that are recorded for us in Peter's sermon. 13 of those verses are direct quotations from Old Testament passages. And so this was a very Bible-heavy message that Peter shared. Again, spur of the moment, didn't pull out his notes, didn't get his iPad out and you know, download the sermon that he had been working on. These are the things he'd been meditating about. These are the passages of Scripture he was familiar with. They probably had gone over them in the last 10 days together. And now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Lord brings these passages to mind. The phrase I used last week, the word I used last week, was he illuminates them for Peter. He gives Peter an understanding of them that he previously did not have so that Peter can present these things so that the audience can respond to that presentation. It's a wonderful, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered sermon that we have recorded for us. And if you go down and you look at, I think it's verse 40, maybe verse 41, we learn there that it's only part of what Peter said. I forget exactly where it is, but uh, it'll say something to the effect of, and with many other words he exhorted them, or, or something like that. And so this is just a portion of this sermon that Peter shared, and it's a wonderful portion, certainly, that we have. This is what is spoken of 
by the prophet Joel. Again, he can go back to the scripture. Now, Joel chapter 2 is maybe the clearest of the Old Testament passages which talk about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes you have a, a little mention here or a portion of a phrase there. But here we have four or five verses which talk about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so and Peter, he now references them. Now, it's important again to note, Joel chapter 2 isn't really about Pentecost. This wasn't really a prophecy about what would happen you know, the day that the church, I guess you could say, began. Again, Joel primarily prophesied about a coming judgment. But once more, in the midst of those prophecies of coming judgment, you have these rays of light. And what Peter is going to do is he's going to compare. He says, in the same way that God will pour out his Holy Spirit in the days of Joel, even so has he poured, even so has he poured out his Holy Spirit on this particular day. He's, he's linking it in that regard. It's the same Spirit that is now being poured out. So again, Joel wrote, Peter declared, verse 17, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons, your daughters, they will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. Now, listen to how much of that stuff, I mean, a lot of the stuff that is mentioned there, wasn't occurring on Pentecost. Did the sun turn to moon or the blood to moon? You know, all those things that are listed there. I just read it. I kind of forget what it says. Did the sun turn to darkness, the moon to blood? No. So much of those things aren't occurring on this day of Pentecost. What Peter is doing is he's making the link to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In the same way he's going to do that in the last days. And, you know, those terminologies, those phrases they should remind you of places like Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation and so on. So in the same way God's going to pour out his spirit in those days, he's poured out his spirit in this day. What Peter has done is he's demonstrated that, as we've seen it together, that uh, these Old Testament prophecies often will have a near fulfillment and they will have a far fulfillment. Here is the near fulfillment. God's pouring out his spirit in the same way that he will pour out the spirit then. Now, some in the crowd that concluded that the Christians were drunk, Peter explains, no, this is the Holy Spirit that is being poured out. And he's empowering them. Joel had said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. To prophesy is to proclaim the truth of God. And so God opened the word to Peter. He illuminated him. He gave Peter insight into his word, and Peter now is boldly proclaiming that word, the truth of God. Notice what Joel says in verse 17, that God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. He says in verse 18, on, even on your male and your female servants. Now in the Old Testament, you remember that the Holy Spirit was poured out. Certain people were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon certain people at certain times for specific purposes. In the New Testament, he pours out his Holy Spirit on all that name the name of Christ. 
on every one of us that is a, a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and he enters into us. That's the distinction, Old Testament faith and New Testament faith. Skipping down to verse 21, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe one of the most important verses in our Bible as far as hope giving is concerned. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's good news for all people of every age from every life circumstance. That salvation is offered to all people on the principle of faith in the Lord. And so whether they be a Jew or a Gentile, if they call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Whether they be an old person or a young person, if they call upon the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. Whether they be highly educated or hardly educated, if they call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. We don't need to change our message for different groups that we go to. We don't have to come up with a strategy and a plan if we're going to go to Nepal to preach the gospel or if we're going to go to the Ocean City Boardwalk to preach the gospel. The message of the cross remains the same. And it has power to save a person, whether they be old or young, Jew or Gentile, educated or not educated. Everyone who calls it in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter will continue. He's still explaining what is going on here. In verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by the pangs of death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter will take seven verses and he'll trace the earthly life of Jesus Christ. So in verse 22, he sums up the life of Jesus by drawing attention to his humble origins, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what the one fellow said, can anything good come from Nazareth? the humble origins of our Lord in the earthly sense. And then he continues to sum up the earthly life by speaking to the fact of the mighty works and the wonders and the signs that God did through Jesus. In verse 23, he draws attention to the death of Jesus. We read, uh, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, referring to the Romans that put him to death. But who delivered him up? The Jews did. That's who, Jesus, that's who uh, Peter is speaking to. And so the second verse there in the passage, verse 23, he unpacks the death of Christ. And then in verse 24, he speaks about the resurrection of Christ. He says, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And then finally down in verse 38, sort of this uh, timeline of Jesus' life, 
his birth and ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Look at verse 33. It's a little bit ahead. And it, it speaks of him being exalted to the right hand of God, of the Father. And that speaks to his ascension, which we read about in Acts chapter 1. And so Peter kind of goes through the life of this man, capital M. And speaking to the crowd, he's now going to begin expounding upon the life of this man. Again, going back to what's his purpose of this sermon to explain what is going on here this particular day. He says in verse 22, none of these things were done by accident. In his words, they were according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Peter presents a lot to them in this opening paragraph, but he hasn't yet, in the opening paragraph, but he hasn't yet begun to, spoke to speak to them about the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so his sermon continues on, as I uh, have already read to you. Now, here's the interesting thing. What brought all these people out? Well, it was the sound of the mighty rushing wind. Well, what was the sound of the mighty rushing wind? Well, that was the best that Luke could come up with to describe what it was when the Holy Spirit came. So it was like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And then what happened? Well, the Holy Spirit filled the believers, the 120 that had gathered, and they began to speak in these tongues, these unknown languages. And so all of the crowd came out, they gathered, they heard the noise, they see the commotion, they're wondering what is going on here. Peter stands up to explain what is going on here. You would expect that the sermon then would essentially be a message about the third person of the Trinity. You would expect this would be a long message about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or something like that. And yet, here, Peter shifts, and it's an entire message about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. That seems a little peculiar. It seems a little odd. It's almost like people in the crowd might be wondering, where are you going with this? I thought you were going to tell me about the Holy Spirit. And yet he tells him about Jesus. But that shouldn't surprise us. I said it, it seems a little bit odd, but those of you that know your Bible, you know that it's not odd at all. Because Jesus said this. He said, when the advocate comes, and if in your Bible that you probably have that letter A capitalized there. John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that Peter's message goes in the direction of explaining who Jesus is and what Jesus had accomplished. A little bit later in the book of John, chapter 16, speaking again of the Holy Spirit, it said, He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And so what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to the scriptures, is to point people to Jesus Christ. Even as Jesus' ministry was to point people to the Father, that he would be glorified. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. And as Peter now preaches, as he's explaining to the people, as he's teaching what it is that is going on, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, we know that, and he's testifying about the Son. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and thus the reason he moves Peter to preach about Jesus. And so he calls the attention of his audience, and having done so, Peter addresses them, and he reminds them that none of these things are by accident. He says to them, you, you know about these things. You saw this Jesus. You're familiar with this Jesus. Everybody heard 
about what Jesus did and what Jesus was doing. And so they either they heard about or they saw the mighty works, the wonders, the signs that the Lord had done. They didn't happen in a corner. He then shifts in, from verse 22, the Lord's ministry, in verse 23 to the reason for why he had come. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was crucified. Not an accident. This is why the Lord had come. You remember when Jesus said he was going to go to Jerusalem, be turned over into the hands of sinful men, and they would crucify him. What did his disciples say? Peter, never be, Lord. Don't talk like that. What's the matter with you? We'll never let that happen. And Jesus rebuked him shortly, sharply. Get behind me, Satan. You're not about the things of the Lord. This is the reason why I had come. Jesus came that he might be crucified. It wasn't an accident. Things didn't spin wildly out of control. This is why the Lord had come, to go to the cross. It was the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God that he would be delivered into the hands of these sinful men. Now, here's an interesting thing. It's an example of the tension in the Bible between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And sometimes we think we have to pick a side. Do you believe in election or do you believe in free will? Which side are you on? Well, I think the Bible's on both of those sides. Is that possible? It's right in the middle. And sometimes we see in the scripture the sovereignty of God here, the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And other times we see in the scripture the free will of man. And so these lawless men who you killed, you crucified him. They're held responsible for that. Even as Judas, the betrayer, was held responsible for his sin, even though it had been prophesied that one of his nearest disciples would betray him. The tension. Notice again Peter's boldness. Look at verse 23. He says, whom you crucified and killed. We don't like to preach like that anymore, do we? We like to speak in sort of superfluity. Is that, the, is that a word? My wife's like, no, it's not a word. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're just sort of, you know, we're, we're just kind of those folks over there. And yes, you know, some... We're sinners too. Sometimes we have mean thoughts, you know, or something like this. No, you're a lot worse than that, buddy. Let me tell you. He says to them, you crucified and killed. Now remember, this is a crowd of people in Jerusalem. Many of the people that are standing there likely were standing two months earlier saying, crucify him, crucify him. Many of the people that are standing there, we, lead, we read a little bit later in the book of Acts that many of the priests came to believe in Jesus Christ. Perhaps it was at this particular message that Peter was giving. But many of the folks that were in Jerusalem were saying, crucify him, crucify him. And anyone associated with them should be put out of the synagogue as well. And here yet, though, is Peter standing up with the 11 saying, I'm with him. Do whatever you want to do to me, I'm with him. You can't take away from me what it is I know to be true, that Jesus Christ, whom you crucified... God raised back from the dead. Very bold on his part. And I believe the, the reason for his boldness, I think it's pretty clear, is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. He says to them, whom you crucified, notice verse 24, you put this man to death, but God raised this man back to life. The word there is God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, for it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so this one who had been raised back to life 
was now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus said, or Peter says, I keep saying it, I'm sorry. Peter says to him, it was not possible for him to be held by death. death could, it, it wouldn't be righteous for this sinless one to be held by death. Romans 6.23, it says, the wages of sin is death. And since Jesus never sinned, death could not hold him permanently. And so when the price of sin had been paid, which was death, Jesus died on the cross, when the price of sin had been paid, the righteousness of God demanded that his son be brought back again from the dead. And so what we have then in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we have then is evidence of the reality that the father was satisfied with the son's payment. So you can know that your sins are forgiven. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross, you can know that your sins are forgiven because of the resurrection. I, I like what somebody has once said. They said that the cross is the payment, the resurrection is the receipt. And the fact that the uh, tomb is empty, and if someone were to come to you and say, well, did you pay your bill? Prove it. The resurrection. Let me just go to my files. Let me get out the receipt. I paid this bill. The resurrection is the receipt. Peter goes on. He makes his case. He's going to quote another passage. This time it's going to be Psalm 16. Psalm 16 written by, spoken by David. It says, now David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, full, make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter here now, he quotes four or five verses from Psalm 16. Now these are the words of David but as Peter quotes them, he, he's going to go on to explain. He makes it clear that David could not have been speaking about himself. Down in verse 30, he's going to refer to David as a prophet. We always oftentimes think of David as a king. But he's going to refer to him there as a prophet. And he says, essentially in this passage, David is prophesying about God's Messiah. These are not words spoken about himself. They're words that are spoken about God's Messiah. Peter goes on in verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And yet David said, you will not allow my uh, body to, to see decay, your holy one to see corruption. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so Peter makes the connection. He points out that that passage is ultimately about the Messiah, prophesying that even though these men would deliver Jesus over to be crucified, God would raise him up again because death could not hold him. David's not speaking about himself. He's speaking about the Messiah. And now notice what Peter does in verse 32. All right, well, who is this Messiah? Notice verse 32, this Jesus. Peter makes it very, very clear that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus is the Christ, 
Peter's saying, that David was looking forward to. It's Jesus whose body would not or did not see corruption or be abandoned to Hades. Rather, he was resurrected. And Peter says, as many of us here are witnesses. You recall Jesus appeared again and again during that 40-day period of time to many different believers. One point, Paul says, even five, over 500 that had gathered together. He had appeared to them. We're all witnesses of these things. He was resurrected. Now, that's pretty significant in and of itself, isn't it? The resurrection, certainly. He goes on. He says, and not only that, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out the Holy Spirit. Not only was he resurrected, but he was seated in heaven, in the heavenlies, it says in the book of Hebrews. He was seated, and it is from that place that the Holy Spirit is now being poured out, which is what Peter is explaining on this particular day. Men of Judea, what you see is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So Peter has already said, you put him to death, but God raised him to life. And not only is he not dead any longer, he's now seated on his throne in heaven. Talk about being on the wrong side of power. You know, you want folks that are in power to be your friend, not your enemy. And here is Jesus seated at the right hand of God. And the guys in front of Peter are the ones who actually put him to death and rejected him. Peter's going to quote another verse. This time, Psalm 110, verse 1. I found this interesting. This verse is quoted or referenced 25 different times in the New Testament. This verse is quoted more times or referenced more times in the New Testament than any other verse from the Old Testament. It says, For David did not descend into, excuse me, ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Your footstool. Excuse me. Peter now is going to use Psalm 110 to show that this Messiah, this Christ that he has been speaking about in his particular sermon, he's going to explain now he's more than an earthly man. He's actually God. Maybe you remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. He referenced this passage when he was interacting with some Pharisees, some religious leaders. And Jesus said in Matthew 22, now while the Pharisees were gathered, it says this, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He said, well, who, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Just a, a probing question to get the Pharisees really articulating, what do you really believe about the Christ? He says, whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. Now, of course, that was uh, the phrase, the term that was used. To the, it was a messianic term, the son of David. Jesus would apply it to himself. And they said, well, he's the son of David. And then Jesus, you know, they, they're kind of like the fish that's on the line. You know, and he's kind of reeling them in a little bit further now. He's called them a little. He's just got to tighten the hook. I don't fish. I, I assume that's what you do. Um, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Jehovah said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? I got hand gestures today. Are you with me here? How can that be? What, what's going on there? Jesus is saying, think about what you're saying when you refer to him as the son of David. Think about who the Messiah actually is. Because in Jewish culture, 
one would never call their offspring Lord. And yet that's exactly what David is doing. He's calling him Lord. So Peter's implication then is simply this. Jesus, the son of David, is more than merely a descendant of David. He's the son of God. If the Messiah were to be a mere human descendant of David, a mere human being, that form of address would never be considered proper. But because the Messiah is something more, David speaking prophetically, it's completely appropriate. Peter has four main points in the second half half of this sermon. Remember the first half? They're not drunk. Let me explain what's really going on. Peter has four main points there. The first is this, that God affirmed the humble carpenter Jesus by doing many signs and wonders through him. The second point, Peter showed that though Jesus was arrested and crucified, that none of those things were outside of the plan and the foreknowledge of God. The cross was his plan from the beginning. Third thing Peter has shown, using the words of the great king and prophet David, he demonstrates that the father would not abandon the Messiah his soul to Hades or his body to see, allow his body to see corruption, but instead that he would raise him from the dead. And then finally, Peter, again quoting David, again, Psalm 110, he shows that the father would not only bring his son back to life, but that he would raise him on high and seed him at his right hand. And so those are the four points. Look at verse 36. Here's the conclusion. Let all Israel, let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. You guys, you failed miserably when God sent forth his son, the Messiah, the long-awaited hope of Israel. You killed him. You failed miserably. And God has established him. It's a very well-reasoned, scriptural, bold, declarative sermon that Peter delivers. And Luke will point out it was very effective. Luke will say in verse 41, a verse we'll look at a little more next week, he'll say, so those who received his word and were baptized were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people, I don't know how many were there, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, but 3,000 people responded to the message that Peter shared. Verse 37, I'll go on, and I'm not going to dig into these right now, but I do want to give you the context. Now, when they heard this, the crowd, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, even as we have. I'm going to add, even as we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And verse 40, and with many other words, Peter bore witness, and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And again, verse 41, so there were added that day those who received his word and were baptized, about 3,000 souls. This Jesus was God's holy Messiah, and his crowd had rejected the Messiah and killed the Messiah. Whatever could they do? Imagine if you were on the wrong side of history in that way. 
Whatever could they do? They were guilty murderers. How could they ever possibly escape God's wrath? And they know it. Notice what he says in verse 31 or 37. The crowd was cut to the heart. So mighty was the convicting power of God's Holy Spirit that came through the exposition of his word that they knew. And they knew that there was something they must do about it. They were the ones responsible for the death of the Messiah. Even as you and I are, because our sin sent him there. And so they asked the question, brothers, what shall we do? I find this really important for us to look at. The exercise of the gift of tongues earlier in the chapter, it produced nothing in these listeners except a curiosity, an astonishment, in some cases a mocking. But when the gospel was preached, the conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon them and prompted a reaction from them. And so they asked, brothers, what shall we do? What can we do? Is there anything we can do? And maybe some of the most remarkable, this concept, Peter will say, imagine if the scripture said this, oh boy, in a situation like that, where someone did those, that type of a thing, there's nothing you can do, I'm sorry. How hopeless our Bibles would be. Because as Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. And you and I, the closer we get to Jesus Christ, the greater sin we realize we have. And so these next words are tremendous hope because Peter will say, they, they say, what shall we do? Peter will say to them, you need to repent and you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Reminding them of that verse that I quoted in the beginning here, because all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is hope for even the most wicked of sinners, even those that crucified and rejected God's Messiah. There is hope for them. And the good news for each of us, and we're going to dig into what does it mean to repent? Is, does baptism save a person? We're going to look at those things the next time we're together. But we're going to leave today with a reminder of the wonderful truth and reality that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Amen? Amen. I just think it's fantastic. I'm going to end with that. Let's pray. Father, we delight in that wonderful truth. Lord, we, we sing about your amazing grace. We sing about your great love. And here we see just a sweet and wonderful example of it. A people that in no way one could look at and say, well, they deserved it. They were, they're a good bunch of people. We remind ourselves of how the Gospels began to draw to a close with them mocking you, rejecting you, beating you, again, making fun of you, and all these things. And yet here, they're given an, an opportunity to experience the grace of God for themselves. And there's hope for them even as there's hope for every one of us that have gathered today. And so, Lord, we delight in the forgiveness of sin that is found in Jesus Christ. And in a fresh way this morning, we invite your blood to wash over each one of us, to cleanse us of that sin, to cover us, 
and the atoning cover of your blood. Lord, I just pray for each one of us that are here that are believers in Jesus Christ, a sense of the freedom that we have in Christ would be realized in a fresh way in each one of us. And certainly, Lord, those that have not yet come to faith, we ask that you would cut them to their hearts this morning and bring them to the place where they cry out to you, what must I do to be saved? And we pray this today for your glory. Amen.